0: We have been studying the blessings of God's love in Romans chapter 5 as we've been working our way through this book, the greatest theological book of the New Testament, the most systematic theological book of the New Testament. And I hope we've been gaining a renewed appreciation for God's love and grace as we've worked our way through here. The theological concept around which we've been examining God's love is the doctrine of justification, which dominates Paul's thinking all the way from verse 21 or so in chapter 3 all the way through chapter 5. Justification. That's a big word, but it just refers to how a man is justified before God. How a man is made right with God. Or more to the point, how can a sinful man be justified before God? Because that's the question we all have to ask ourselves. We learn that justification is a gift. A gift of God's grace. That is, it's unmerited and undeserved. We learn that the gift involves God's righteousness actually being credited to us and our receiving it by trusting God, by faith in the atoning death of Jesus Christ for us. That's what Paul's been teaching us. We learn that love is what moves God to act on our behalf. That's the driving motivation of his heart, if you will, and love of such a kind that it is virtually unknown among men. The kind of love God has for us is unknown amongst human beings. We don't even... We don't even have an analogy in human terms of the kind of love God has. We learned in verse 6 of chapter 5 that Christ died for the helpless. Those so lost, that they could not find their way back to him. He describes these helpless ones in verse 6 as the ungodly. So Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8, he gets even more specific. It says, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us so he didn't wait for us to get our act together while we were in the worst condition possible as far away from him as possible he died for us reached out to us came to help us in verse 10 the death of Christ is seen to work for the salvation of God's enemies and that's the point where Paul just takes it to the absolute stretch beyond human capacity to love who would die for their worst enemy God would verse 11 not only this but we uh, verse 10, I mean, For we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So helpless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. That is the human condition as Paul describes it. And that is exactly the condition in which God reaches out to us with saving love. Those who deserve only condemnation are in fact the recipients of divine favor. That's the wonder of it all. That's why there are churches. That's why we exist. That's why we're here. It's a love that sacrifices all to win back God's enemies. Paul says this must be a cause of exultant joy for us because we have been reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. Verse 11, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, last week, we saw that beginning in verse 12, Paul begins to expand his discussion of God's reconciling love for sinners. By looking at the big picture, going all the way back to the beginning and looking at the whole thing that's going on, the origin of our wickedness and what God has done about it. And as things are, you can look at this whole human condition, God's salvation question as a comparison or a contrast between two men. Sin entered into the world through one man and sin was dealt with and salvation comes to us through one man. But there's another contrast woven into the last half of chapter 5. Adam and Christ are contrasted, but so is sin and grace. And this is really an important thing to understand. The human mind would tend religiously to think that the contrast is between sin and righteousness, which in a sense it is. Sin being violation of God's law, righteousness keeping God's law. Well, that is a contrast, but a sinner will find himself in the sin category. That's where I find myself. The question is, is it even remotely possible for me to ever get in the righteous category? And as we've seen, as we've been studying through this, yes. But it only can come through the sacrificial death of Christ, whose perfection God can take and actually put into our account, if you will, because we have this huge deficit of righteousness. He can fill up that account to have the righteousness of Christ, So that when God looks at us on Judgment Day, He doesn't see us for who we are. He sees us in Christ. That's a very common phrase in the New Testament. In Christ. So that His righteousness belongs to us and God can grant us the approval that He gives His own Son. It's a wonder. It's a miracle. It's an act of God. So the contrast isn't so much in Romans 5 between sin and righteousness as it is between sin and grace because grace is that favor of God that he gives to sinful people to make them righteous. Okay? So, sin. One man's wicked choice and the resulting fall of man, which polluted his children and his children's children, even down to today, has a remarkable power. This one choice has this incredible power, sin. Paul uses the term used of kings. He calls it a reign like a king's reign, a reign of power because of sin. Verse 14 says, death reigned. Death reigned over humanity. Death was king over all men because of one man's act. Verse 21, sin reigned in death, it says. Verse 21 of chapter 5. So the horrible consequences of sin that men should be without God, separated from Him, from their good and just Creator, all comes from this one act. Such a disastrous wicked choice from the first man. But time and again, Paul speaks of God's grace and he uses the term much more. Over and over in chapter 5, he says much more. As powerful and as ruinous as sin is, grace is much more powerful. Not only repairing sin's damage, but far surpassing our original condition and where it takes us. So where death once reigned, grace reigns in Christ, and we will reign if we belong to him. That's what it says right here. So before we look at all this much more wonderful work of grace stuff, which is really great, we're going to get to that in a minute, I want to remember and review just how awful that first sin was and what it did to us in casting us out of fellowship with our great God. Remember the words of Chesterton who said that original sin, this idea that we are all morally polluted and corrupt, is the only doctrine in Christianity for which you have, every single day, plenty of observable evidence. And it's true. You can just look in your own heart every single day and find wickedness there. And Where does that come from? What is the origin of that? Why are you like that? Why am I like that? If you can't answer that question successfully, you've got a wrong philosophy of life. The Bible answers it. It's the only answer I've ever found that actually makes sense for the way the human condition really is. Verse 14 says, Nevertheless, death reigned. Death we defined in both spiritual and physical terms. Physical death is a separation. You're separating your spirit from your body. Spiritual death is a separation. You're separating yourself from God, who is the source of all life. So there's a separation there. That's spiritually dead. When Adam sinned, he was cut off from God. He was spiritually dead. And then his body started to die. It took a long time, but it started. That process of death entered into the world. Death reigned. As Jonathan Edwards said, death is spoken of in Scripture as the chief of calamities, the most extreme and terrible of all natural evils in the world. The one great reality of human life is that man on his own, in his own natural condition, is characterized by death. You're born in a state of already... Your your clock starts ticking right away, and you're going to die. That's how devastating the result of one man's decision was. That's how much significance God gave the will of man, the one creature on earth made in God's image. When he made a choice, it had ruinous results beyond really probably what he even was thinking through. People behave all the time as if their choices are not significant. I see that all the time. They'll make disastrous choices and like, well, it's not that big of a deal to make this particular choice. What could have been this, could have been that, I chose this. Human choices have eternal significance. We think it's just this over that. It's not so. We, Because we're made in God's image, we have this incredible capacity to make moral choices, to choose good or to choose evil. And when we choose evil, it has an incredible consequence. When we choose good, it has an incredible consequence. Last week we mentioned the ancient theology of Pelagius. I don't want to get into all of that, but he believed that each of us is born in the same condition as Adam before the fall. There is no pollution. We're all born just like Adam was born. And every time a child is born, he has an absolute free choice to choose good or choose evil. He's just free, just like Adam was free. We're all free and good unless we follow his bad example the only influence adam has on us is that he was a bad example and pelagius believed that the only effect of adam's sin was this example that he gave us which was to choose against god well the church fathers back in the early centuries of the church rightly condemned this teaching of pelagianism as heretical because it did not give the proper weight to the profound effects of the fall in polluting and corrupting our nature i don't know how pelagius looked at his own heart and didn't see there this moral pollution. But Pelagius' greatest theological opponent back in the 4th century was Augustine, St. Augustine, or Augustine, as my church history teacher used to call him. Augustine championed grace, like the Apostle Paul did. And he saw the biblical understanding of man, fallen man, as far more ruinous And that man is far more needy than Pelagius was willing to consider. Augustine, by the way, was the theologian most quoted by the reformers. If you read Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and all the great Protestant reformers, they go back to Augustine for a lot of their theology because he was so strong in the doctrines of grace, which is Paul's great emphasis. Let me share with you Augustine's list of the effects of the fall of Adam on his posterity, on all of us, on mankind. Pelagius said he was a bad example. Augustine said, no, there's seven major effects of the fall on all of us. The first one is the loss of freedom. This is really important. Man lost the freedom to choose God, the freedom to follow God, the freedom to love God with his whole heart. You can't just do that. You can't just decide that you're going to follow God with your whole heart. Christians should not speak of free will as though we can choose any course we want apart from Christ and apart from grace. See, grace is that favor of God by which He reaches into a heart and makes it alive so that it has a capacity to choose. But without that grace of God given to us, we have no capacity to choose God or to follow Him or to love Him. He's just this thing. You pray to him when you're in trouble or you have a superstitious belief in or you, you, know, you want something to happen so you pray to him or something like that or you're afraid of him because he's this terrifying deity or something like that. We can't choose him. Our will is in bondage. That's a biblical term to sin, Romans 7. Martin Luther wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will because he was arguing with the prevalent uh, theology of his day which said that we all have this free will and he said no we don't. We have a will. You have a will to choose. You can go to Kmart or Ralph's or Alphabet or whatever the kind of thing. We can't choose Alphabet anymore. But you can choose to go to one store and I don't know. You can choose to drive over here and go over there. You can choose to lay in bed this morning or go to work. You can choose. That. You have a choice but do you have a will that's so free that you can choose to love God and follow Him with your whole heart apart from His grace? No. Don't have that. You're in bondage. Your will is in bondage to sin. You can choose this sin or that sin, but your will is in bondage to sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. That's right there in Romans chapter 3. Obviously, if man had a free will as Adam had, like Pelagius believed, he could seek for God but he is so in bondage to evil that he doesn't want to do that. That isn't on his list. He doesn't get up in the morning, the natural man, and say, how can I pursue God today? That isn't even a concern. He might be religious, but not in a way that pleases God or that even honors God. That's why Jesus said in John six forty four, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Apart from God's divine action, we can't, we won't choose him. We're not free. The second consequence of the fall is what um, Augustine said was the obstruction of true knowledge. Theologians call it the the noetic effects of sin. Nous is the Greek word for mind, noetic. One aspect of this is simple deterioration. Our brains are uh, wrecked by the curse you now they say we use only a small percent of our brains as it is that's a result of the fall why is that why aren't you like Einstein or somebody who maybe uses three percent more brain than you do but still doesn't use even close to the amount of brain power that he has we're not nearly as sharp as Adam and Eve were supposedly we don't even use all this vast amounts of brain of course this was proven by the invention of television that we don't have a lot of use of our brain More significant is our inability to reason properly. People are easily deceived and self-deceived. Aren't you always amazed at how dumb other people are? Maybe they're amazed at how dumb you are sometimes. But prejudice enters into our thinking. Uh, Just uh, stupidity enters into our thinking. we, We make decisions on the worst possible evidence about things. We judge people all the time. Our thinking often gives way to sinful or corrupt desires. We justify bad behavior because of this or that, or I needed to do that, I'm a victim of this and that, and kind of all those kind of things. Scripture describes the human mind as darkened. Remember Romans chapter 1, verse 21, when we were there. Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. We live in a culture where the elites of our culture have darkened, foolish minds blatantly misunderstanding human nature and then going on like they're brilliant about it and it's so obviously foolish third effect the fall has lost man the aid of God's grace we don't have the aid of God's grace a man who didn't fall would always have God's immediate assistance in sustaining and sustaining help in any difficulty of any kind but in the fall that is lost God may be gracious he may be but he has no obligation to be, and often he is not. So we're stuck with our own wickedness and its consequences. Number four, we lost paradise. We lived in a cursed world. Decay, disease, corruption, a harsh and often unforgiving environment. A couple of weeks ago, I read that book, um, Endurance, about the, the guys that went to South um, the South Pole. They were trying to get to the South Pole. They never made it. Their ship got locked in ice and they spent two years living on ice floes and eating seals and all that. And just this incredible story, but just the harshness of the conditions they were in and all the horrible things they had to go through to try to survive. And it was just a remarkable story. That's a result of the curse. And in paradise, before the fall of man, you could go to Antarctica and it would have been a pleasant place. We actually know that because there's tons of coal. In Antarctica, tons of it. And you know what coal comes from? It comes from plants and vegetation and lush vegetation. And there's no vegetation in Antarctica now, none. Things changed after the fall of man. God cursed the world, and uh, there's weeds and mosquitoes and all kinds of things, whatever. The fifth thing the presence of what in old theology they used to call concupiscence or sensuality. This refers to a bent in our nature towards the corruption of the flesh. Now this isn't the body's capacity to just enjoy things in a, in a sensual way. That's that's a God-given thing. It's the out-of-bounds, out-of-control, sensual nature that overthrows the governing principles of wisdom and reason that puts our sensual nature in its proper place and its proper perspective. It's that part of us that throws reason away and does stupid stuff, gets caught up in addictions and all kinds of fleshly amusements and things like that. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 7, verse 14, when he says, we know the law is spiritual, but I am, in, I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. That's what he says, Romans seven fourteen. He says, for that which I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I do the very thing I hate. Anybody ever have that experience? So did apostles. That's... Con- concupiscence, this whole sensual nature that we have. The historian Philip Schaff comments, he says, originally the body was as joyfully obedient to the spirit as man to God. There is but one will in exercise. By the fall, this beautiful harmony has been broken and that antagonism has arisen, which Paul describes in the seventh chapter of the epistle to the Romans. concupiscentia, the Latin expression, therefore is substantially the same as what Paul calls in a bad sense flesh. It is not the sensual constitution in itself, but its predominance over the higher rational nature of man. Concupiscence, then, is no more a merely corporeal thing than the biblical flesh, but has its seat in the soul without which no lust arises. So we have this problem of our sensual nature. Number six, he said the sixth consequence of Adam's sin, according to St. Augustine, is physical death. We talked about that last week. The seventh thing is what Augustine called hereditary guilt or original sin. And that is the passing on from parent to child, from Adam to us, a sinful nature. Now, I don't know about you. I've got three children. They all have a sinful nature. Does anybody here have a child without a sinful nature? I'd like to meet that child. Do you? You don't have a child. You are a child without a sinful nature. Okay. Let's ask your mom, Jason. <clears throat> we are not born neutral, but we have this bent towards evil. Keep an eye on that kid. <laughs> For Augustine, that involved Adam's guilt as well, and we talked about that last week, whether or not we share his guilt or not. But the, the point is the effects of the fall are way beyond the idea of Pelagius that Adam had a bad example, and we kind of follow his example. The effects of the fall were profound, and we find ourselves still very much in the condition described here in the book of Romans and described by Augustine but just as profound and even greater than the change from created man to fallen man is the change from fallen man to redeemed man as incredible as the effects of the fall were dragging us down into this moral corruption this horrible world we live in the work of Christ to redeem us and bring us out of that is even more powerful much more as Paul would say and more wondrous what Jesus did far surpasses what Adam did the fall of man was a natural consequence of this choice. But salvation isn't just a natural consequence. It's actually God intervening in humanity. god It's God's doing. And he alone gets the credit and deserves honor and devotion for rescuing us from ourselves. Adam falls, this sort of thing just plays out, this natural fall into oblivion and despair and and sin and wickedness and all of that but God intervenes he doesn't have to he just does and Jesus comes he lives a human life he lives a perfect sinless life he's brutally treated all unspeakably tortured and put to death voluntarily on our behalf rescuing us from ourselves he doesn't have to do that now in verses 15 through 19 we're finally up to speed here almost out of time in Romans 5, you have a series of contrasts between Adam's transgression and its results. If you got one of those sheets that was being passed around, in fact, I, uh, I'm going to do something radical and use the overhead projector, which I've never done. It's kind of exciting. I get to be an overhead man. Once I had a Sunday school board with flannel graphs years ago, and I was so excited. Now I'm, I'm using a visual aid because, because I just want you to see this contrast thing. It's really interesting. Um, as you look at these... Either up there, which I'd prefer because I made that up, you know, I went through all the trouble, or you can use, use the sheet you've got there. But I want you to see how large a part of the concept of grace plays in Paul's thinking. When you look at the Christ side, before he really gets to, I mean, he talks about Christ all throughout it, but he's emphasizing grace, 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 free gift. As the as the contrast to what Adam did, it's not what we do to get to heaven that matters. It's what Christ did and gave us. That's just over and over and over what Paul wants you to get out of it. That's the gospel. That's why it's called good news. The gospel isn't you'd better be good. If you're not good, you're not getting in, and you're not very good. You're not looking good. That's not gospel. That's bad news. If you had to earn your way into heaven, that's bad news. The good news is this idea of God's grace. God's unmerited favor. This is the big theme. You'll never understand Christ and understand what he did without understanding grace. Verse 15 begins with a general statement of contrast. He starts off, he says, but the free gift, he uses the word charisma in Greek, grace gift. The, the grace gift is not like the transgression. Now we set up the contrast. We've got two categories we're going to start looking at. Verse 14 ended at saying that Adam was a type, a a representation of Christ who was to come. Well, verse 15 tells us he's like Christ as an opposite. He's like like Christ as a contrast, an anti-type, if you will. Both men, the, the thing they have in common is this, they both acted and radically changed the destiny of many other people. That's how they're similar. But in exactly the opposite directions. That's how they're contrasted. So the first contrast in verse 15 is the word for in the second sentence. Therefore, if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So notice the contrast is not precise. There's the transgression of one, death, and there's grace and the gift of grace, And instead of saying life, he says it abounds. It's not an exact parallel. And he wants it not to be, so you're thinking about it more. You've got transgression, death, grace, gift of grace, abounding. You'd expect a word like life to be there, but he uses the word abound. Life comes later. He's just going to use that word. But Paul wants you to see the nature of this contrasting deed. It's an act of grace. It's a gift. It's an abundant gift. It's a much more thing. Adam Horribly wronged his posterity, but Christ gives his people much more an abundant gift. The second contrast you see in verse 16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. This is really interesting too. One transgression, condemnation. Free gift, justification. He isn't even trans... He's not yet anyway. He's not saying one act, one act. He's saying one transgression, condemnation, free gift, justification. And then he has a really interesting and unexpected phrasing here. He says, judgment arose from one sin, one transgression. The gift arose from... You'd expect him to say Christ's righteousness, but he says many transgressions. In other words, he's saying Adam's sin, it destroyed, our, it destroyed his posterity, it cast him away from God, it brought all these ruinous effects, this one act. But the free gift comes as God looks upon all the sin of man and all these horrible sins and all the horrible things that have come from Adam's fall. And as a result of all seeing all of that, God gives us the gift that moves God to be merciful. You would expect him to say one act of righteousness, but that's coming in verse 18. But instead he's talking about what motivated God to do this, and it's the sin of man. Paul is saying God's judgment came from one man's sins, but the gift of salvation comes from God because of many men's sins. It's the same idea we find in verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's the same idea you see in verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. One sin led to judgment and condemnation. Many sins have led God to act as a redeemer of sinners. He loves us. He wants us. He is saving us. He acted for us. So many transgressions called forth mercy and grace. The third contrast, verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Here's another interesting kind of odd comparison. Transgression of one who reigns. Death reigns. Now you'd expect him to say, through the righteous act of one, life reigns, but he doesn't say that. He emphasizes grace to the ones who will reign those who receive grace and the gift of righteousness, righteousness put in their account, they will reign. It's an unexpected parallel there. The emphasis is still on the freeness of God's grace and His salvation. And we have another much more phrase here. Grace isn't like judgment. Sin and judgment are matters of justice. You can't measure grace like justice. Sin, consequence. Sin, justice. Sin, you get this. Sin, fall. Grace, how do you measure forgiveness and mercy and exaltation and reconciliation with God? It doesn't fit. It's abounding mercy. You don't measure mercy in the same way because it's not justice. It's better than justice. So again, we might have expected the contrast to focus on Christ, but he's saving that for the last thing. Death reigned. Because of our transgression, we who receive, quote, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life. How? Through Christ, he says. Verse 17. It's just an amazing idea. Death reigned. We who are sinners and are dying, death reigned over us, it had power over us. We were slaves of death, death was the king. But in Christ, we become kings of life in Jesus. That is, that is abounding grace. We not only live, but we reign in life through Jesus, he says. Because just like Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, it tells us that in Christ we are children of God and fellow heirs with Jesus. It's just an incredible concept. And you know, the, I think the big problem for people is, is that really possible? Can God really be that merciful? Can God be that gracious? Can that really happen? Will God do that for somebody like me? Yes. Yes, He will. Don't forget, Adam's transgression got us in this mess we're in. And I don't think there's any alternative explanation for our corrupt nature, so that's got to be true, and that's what the Bible says. Well, why can't you believe the other half of the Bible which has the good news? It's a much more salvation based on abounding grace. Believe it. God loves sinners. Believe it. And as certain as death is in this world, just as certain is life for those who are in Christ. We will reign in life through Christ. That's just wonderful news. And if your sin drags you down and you think that can't be true, it's true. That's where faith comes in. Believe it. It's true. The fourth contrast, verse 18. So then... As through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there results justification of life to all men. Now we have another, this is a lot more formal contrast here. One transgression, condemnation. One act of righteousness, justification of life. So verse 18 begins, so then, and we talked about last time, he's really picking up the thought at the end of um, verse 12 there. You know, verse 12 was a cut off sentence, and everything after that was sort of explanatory, and now he's sort of picking it up again where he was, where he left off in verse 12. He's saying, the act of righteousness refers to the saving work of Christ on the cross, where he voluntarily took to himself our guilt and sin, and bore God's wrath for us. So now he's saying, so one transgression, there resulted condemnation. Through one act of righteousness, Christ." You could just look at it as the whole picture, Christ's righteous life and giving that life for us results in justification of life to all. Of course, that's all who believe. The fifth contrast, verse 19 For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of one the many will be made righteous. Sinners can become righteous through Jesus Christ. To obey, to disobey. What vastly different ends come as a result of each choice. One made by Adam, one made by Jesus. You know, just as a side note, we are very foolish when we think that one is just like the other. Disobedience and obedience. And we often do. There's small risks in disobeying, we think. Not much benefit in obedience, we think. They're not that different. Look at Adam and Christ. They're infinitely different. I wonder if Adam thought like that. Well, it's not that much different. You eat an apple, you don't eat an apple. You disobey, you obey. What's what's the big deal that can really happen? What happened? How bad can disobedience be? Well, every wretched reality of life, as we know, came from an act of disobedience. Billions were made sinners because of one man's disobedience. But praise God that by his mercy, many are made righteous through the obedience of one man, Jesus. What if Jesus had blown it? What if he decided not to go through with it? Choices matter. Obedience matters. And thankfully, God more than makes up for our failures, at least for those who believe. And it's grace that does it, the free gift. I hope you can see the enormous emphasis on grace here in God's word grace, gift, free gift. He uses all the words for gift that's in the Greek language here. It's really interesting when you study this in the original languages because he's just using all these different words and uh, trying to, in every way, to cover it. Over and over he says it You can only be reconciled to God by his grace. What should that do to us just hearing all this? Well, I go back to where we always go back to. The the starting place is always humility. It should humble us. We should be humbled before a God who's not only perfect and just but is profoundly merciful. How can you stand and thumb your nose at a God who's so willing to forgive? It should make us long for grace and be eternally grateful for having received grace. Grace. Now, somebody might ask, and somebody would have asked, Paul knew because he'd had these discussions many times, probably a Jew would ask, what about the law of Moses? What about the law? law? And Paul's going to say something absolutely shocking and unbelievable about the law. He's going to say, because we're saved not by law-keeping, he's been arguing all this time, but by grace, he's going to say, well, you know, the law came and it made people worse. We'll talk about that next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift, the free gift, the charisma, the grace gift that we have in our Lord Jesus. It's something to cling to. It's an anchor. It's a mountain, a rock. And if we would just embrace it, we would be rescued from Your wrath on wickedness. What an offer you make to us. Give us grace, God. Open our hearts to receive and understand and cling to that freeness of salvation that you offer to us. And we know what that will do. It'll change us. Because we'll be grateful and we'll live in gratitude for you. Thank you. In his name we pray. Amen.